what's the goal here? What are we trying to do? What is it we're after? Please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning in verse 8. And as we go there, let's recognize this, ladies and gentlemen, is the Word of God. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We've asked the question, what is it we're about? When I'm asking that question, it's to do with the church. Why do we have church? Well, because God has spoken, God has initiated, God has ordained that those who come to Christ are in fact part of the church in terms of his people. But he has ordained and governed in the sense of saying there should be a corporate gathering, there should be elders involved, there should be all that goes into the mechanics and the ingredients, the components that make up what is a biblical church, and every Christian is to be part of it. As someone who was outside of the local church who never was a part of it may call themselves Christians, but they cannot be obedient Christians if they're not part of a local church. Everyone who was repenting and believing and were baptized in Acts chapter 2, real picture of what the church is about. They were immediately brought into the fellowship of the saints and were active members in the local church. And so there weren't people who fell through the cracks. 3,000 people converted on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 added to the church. None, none, none fell through the cracks. And God has an elect people. We know that from Genesis to Revelation. He has people that he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. So God has a people and he is on the march to redeem every one of them. And at the cross, Jesus died for them. Father chose them. The Son died for them. And the Holy Spirit applies the redemption wrought by the Son to that same people. And so Paul, being about God's business, talked about the suffering he was enduring at the moment he was bound in chains as a criminal, recognizing the word of God is not bound and he can still get the word out as he did with this letter to Timothy. And then he gives the word therefore in verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. God is after his people in mission, save the elect. None are lost. He achieves all he sets out to achieve. He redeems them and all of them will be in heaven. Uh, God is not a failure. He's the ultimate victor and successor, if that's a word. He, he does everything he plans to do, that's the God of the Bible. He's not trying to do anything. He's not trying to save. He's not 
trying to speak. He does everything in, uh, in terms of his plans. They are executed, every one of them. I say a thing and I establish it and I bring it to pass. That's the God of the Bible. Just read our Bibles. That's who God is. And Paul, knowing that God has an elect people, writes and says, I'm going through stuff, big stuff, but I endure it all. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So let's ask the question. How does God achieve the salvation of the elect? First of all, by initiating the plan, executing it in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit's power, bringing all the elect to saving faith through the means of the preaching of the gospel, through the means of people hearing the message of the gospel. Everyone who is elect will come to faith. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the coming to Christ is the coming in faith. And the coming and the believing are interchangeable terms there in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Those who believe on the Son are brought into the family of God and are raised up on the last day. No one can come to the Father and no one can come unless... Coming to the Son in that context, John 6, 44, no man can come to me, Jesus said. No one can, talking about ability, no one can, no one has the ability, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the sovereign grace of God. And Paul says, Paul writes to express the fact that he's enduring all he's enduring for that same purpose, the sake of the elect. So how do we go about gathering the elect? Well, God does it through means. And the means is faith. How does faith come? Romans tells us. Not by soft music playing. Not by um, name the thing. Name the event. Name what man can do. And the only legitimate way of them coming to Christ is the means that God has ordained. And I believe that's true for churches. And that is the means of the proclamation of God's message. Summing up the fact that we all have to come to Christ and God has an elect people and all of that being true, Romans Chapter 10 tells us very familiar words. Romans chapter 10. And beginning in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's a question. They're not going to call unless they believe. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? The answer, the rhetorical question is asked and the answer is obvious. It's not going to happen. They're not going to call unless they believe. And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? 
How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Again, rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. They're not going to believe unless they hear. Continuing on, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, another question. It's a rhetorical question because once again the answer is obvious. They're not going to hear unless someone proclaims the message. Verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Question. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. Here's the conclusion. So, verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Go on in your Bibles to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In recent times, as I write emails to uh, the people of King's Church, I write these words, to the maturation of God's people, the maturation of God's people, the salvation of the lost, and the glory of the triune God. Those, I believe, are three huge purposes I can find in Scripture as to the reason why churches exist, the reason why pastors exist, the motivation for what they do, the salvation of the, the lost. We could say the salvation of the elect. We know that those who are in a lost condition will be lost until God brings them all the way home. And he does. And he uses means. And that means is the proclamation of the message of God, the word of God, the word, the message of Christ. And Paul is even more specific about that message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Perhaps you'll turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there he speaks of the word or the message and in actually verse 17 he said for Christ he wrote for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be be emptied of its power he didn't want his eloquence to be on display he wanted the cross of Christ to be on display and rather than tickling the ears with all kinds of man-made rhetoric that would stimulate the ears, sound nice to the tone in terms of what the ear heard. He meant that the message is a simple message and that's what he's about. He goes on to say that in dramatic terms. And he says, look, I'm I'm not... uh, I'm not here to to baptize. That wasn't my mission. There were a few folk that I baptized, but very few, because my mission, my mandate was to preach the gospel and to do so not with eloquent wisdom words. For what reason? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, of course, there's no way the cross itself and the work of Jesus on the cross be emptied of its power, but it would be emptied in the hearing of the people if what was on display was not the simple proclamation of the cross of Christ 
but the eloquent wisdom words that he could come up with. He was way beyond the normal, the average in terms of his education. He had the finest education in the ancient world. And he could have gone there, but he made a decision. We find that in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. He explains, it was not when I came to Corinth the idea, I'm going to just be as good as the folk you hear, maybe even better uh, with their rhetoric. No, I'm going to preach a simple, simple message. And here's what he writes in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For, and that's a linking word. So he's linking what he's just revealed, what he's just written, by the word for. For the word or the message, the proclamation, the word of the cross, look what it is, is folly to those who are perishing. Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, understand this. Paul knows that the unsaved are likely to see in his message only foolishness. The perishing are not going to think, wow. They're going to think the opposite of wow. How foolish. The word, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So, Paul writes in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God. Remember that? For the salvation of everyone who believes. Here, Paul uh, divulges the fact that the, the gospel specifically here, the word of the cross is the power of God. So the gospel is the power of God and the word of the cross is the power of God. Why is that? Because the gospel centers in on the word of the cross. Without the cross, there's no gospel. That's why the more I study my Bible, the more I realize the perfect harmony. There is only one author um, even though there's around 40 human authors, uh, it, there's no contradiction here at, at all. So the word of the cross is the power of God. Hear that. The gospel is the power of God. You want more power? Hear the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. The word of the cross, that's the power of God. That's where it all happens. And then he quotes the Old Testament, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So, quoting the Old Testament, he says this, God's on a mission to make human wisdom evaporate. I'm not sure that's the best word. Put out of action. I'm not sure that's the right way of saying it either. What we have here is the word destroy. That's a strong word. That's strong language. Not, I'm going to reduce the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to destroy it. And the discernment of the discerning, I'll thwart. That's activity on God's part. 
Two things God does in verse 19. Destroy and thwart. What's he destroying? The wisdom of the wise. What is he thwarting? The discernment of the discerning. So we've got people out in the world with worldly wisdom and God says, I'm on a mission to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I'm on a mission to thwart the discernment of the discerning. Because all of the discerning of the wise in this world, the discernment, the wisdom of the wise comes to nothing in God's eyes. I want to ask you, in your life and in my life, we need to recognize a secular view of the world and be very careful that in our own thinking, we don't baptize, we don't baptize secular worldviews. View, world what I mean by that is put a Christian flavor to it, a Christian lingo to it, but all we've done is baptized secular views and that's what's between our ears, the view of the world. Because God says... I'm on a mission in my purposes. When I save, what has to happen is a recognition that worldly wisdom won't get you to God. Discernment of the discerning. Appearing to be wise in the world's eyes doesn't get you to God. The way to God is through the message of the cross and by believing it. And by believing it, you're saved. Because the word, the message of the cross, is the power of God. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Question. Question number one. Question number two. Where is the scribe? Question number three. Where is the debater of this age? Question number four, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Four questions, none of which are answered, but again, they're rhetorical questions because again, the answer is obvious. Where's the one who is wise in the scheme of things, in God's operation? Nowhere. Where is the scribe? He might think he's somewhere. He's nowhere in this. Where is the debater of this age? I want to debate you on this. God says, where are you? You are not where I am. And look at this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's a question we need to ask. Because I believe the thunderous answer is yes. Though the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, God made Foolish, the wisdom of the world in the message of the cross. It's one or the other. There's no neutrality. We must understand God opposes the wisdom of the world. He destroys the wisdom of the wise and he thwarts the discernment of the discerning. Look at the next verse. It starts with the word for. Again, same thought now being developed. For, since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, who do what? Believe. There is so much in verse 21. In God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. See, start with man. Picture in your own mind, man at the center of a page, and then you put a a ring around it, a circle around it, and then what comes out of that, the arrows that flow out of man at the center is man's view of science, man's view of creation, man's view of philosophy, man's view of love, man's view of God. And start with man, and you cannot reason your way to God in terms of being right with him. It's starting off in the wrong place. It's the age-old analogy. Put the button of the shirt in the wrong hole at the top, it's going to be wrong all the way down. You'll have the wrong button in the wrong hole all the way down. And you start with man and a secular mindset, secular philosophy, you will not end up on the mountain of God enjoying his truth. God will thwart you because he destroys the wisdom of the wise and thwarts all the discernment so-called of the world. Why? For since in the wisdom of God, God made sure the world's not getting to me by its wisdom. But it pleased God through the folly, so-called, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul understood where the Jews were coming from. He understood where the Greeks, the Gentiles, were coming from. Here's what he writes. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Think about that. There's a lot in that verse. Jews have Moses. They had signs. And so for them to surrender to the truth in their eyes, someone's got to come with signs like Moses or else we're not going to believe. Greeks, different people group, Gentiles, They seek wisdom. They seek wisdom of a kind. Not God's wisdom, but man's. So Paul knew, hear this, Paul knew what people wanted to hear and what they wanted to see. They wanted to see signs and they wanted to hear wisdom. And so what did Paul do? Well, Did he accommodate them? You know, he did have many, many signs. You read the book of Acts. Extraordinary signs, extraordinary miracles took place under the ministry of Paul. But his message wasn't signs. His message was the word of the cross. Look at this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but there's no accommodation here. We preach Christ crucified. 
we preach a crucified Messiah. Christ means Messiah. Christ in English comes from the Greek Christos. In Greek, related to the Hebrew word Mashiach for Messiah, Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. We preach the Messiah crucified. And look, he understood what Jews would make of that message. Jews, when they hear of a Messiah crucified, it's a stumbling block. It's something they can't get over. And Paul knew it. Why? Because their own Tanakh, the Torah portion of the Tanakh, the first five books of the Bible, book of Deuteronomy makes it clear, anyone hanging on a tree is under a curse. And you're preaching the message of someone hanging on a tree, Christ crucified, that's a stumbling block to the Jews who've read their Bible. Their Bible, what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. So, Paul knew they demand signs, but we're going to preach Christ crucified anyway, not signs and wonders. We preach our message is the word of the cross, the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, and to Jews, it's a stumbling block. He knew it. What about Gentiles? And folly to Gentiles. Greeks and Gentiles are words that are interchangeable. Verses 22, 23. Greeks seek wisdom, folly to Gentiles. So to Gentiles, it sounds awful. What? Some itinerant Jew got put on a cross and that's the center event of all human history? Really? Didn't even happen in Greece? You're kidding. In Jerusalem? Some Messiah was put on a cross? You expect me to believe that? That's, that's foolishness. Paul knew what the reaction would be. But the message was God's message, not Paul's. And as an apostle of Christ, his mandate was to do what God called him to do. And the calling was to preach the gospel, and the gospel is of Christ crucified. So, Paul knows what is ahead when he starts his ministry in Corinth. Jews going to find this to be a stumbling block. Gentiles are going to find this to be foolishness. Look at this next but though. Verse 24. But to those who are called. Oh, the way Paul uses that word called, he speaks of a powerful call. I was once in a park and a dog saw another dog. And you guessed it, ran after the other dog. And the owner of the first dog called to the dog and the dog ignored him because he'd seen the other dog. Had to introduce himself, say hello to the other dog. The call was not effectual. <laughs> That's the opposite of what Paul has in mind when he refers to the word called here. They are called and they're called out. It's kind of the Lazarus call. Do you remember when in John chapter 14... John chapter 11, 
14, I believe, is something else. But for, chapter 11 is the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And what did he do? He, he called Lazarus by name. And it was an effectual call. It called him out of death into life. It brought him back from death. He was resurrected. That's a powerful call. That's the kind of call that we're talking about. It's the same one we read of in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Those whom he called, he justified. This is not the outward proclamation of the gospel that goes to the ear. It's beyond that. It goes to the heart and it produces the Christian by the power of God. But to those who are called, look at this, both Jews and Greeks. So there are Jews and there are Greeks and there are called people within both groups. And they're going to get the message. They're going to receive the message. They're going to believe the message. And what they're going to see in the message is Christ. What are they going to understand? Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, look at this, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice the context. It's in the context of Jews demanding signs. They want to see power. Greeks Greeks seeking wisdom. And the called see in Christ true power. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, see in the cross of Christ true wisdom, ultimate wisdom, the wisdom of God. Wow. (laughs) Paul understood People aren't going to like this. Not everyone's going to like this. This message of the cross is an offensive message, either a stumbling block or foolishness to everyone except the called. And that's God's business. We don't know who the called are. God does. That's why we preach the gospel to everybody. What do we preach? The gospel, the message of the cross. And we understand going in, Some people are going to find this to be a stumbling block. Others are going to find this to be foolishness. But there are called out there amongst the Jews and amongst the Gentiles, amongst the Greeks. And they will see in this message, Christ, wow, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why we preach. Because God has an elect people. And he, by the means of the preaching of the gospel, will get them. He'll bring all his lost sheep home. And verse 25, we see another word, for. That's the third mention of the word for, F-O-R, in this passage. Verse 18, for. Verse 19, for. Actually, for. Uh, Verse 22, four. Verse 25, four. We're going to see another one in verse 26. There are lots of fours. I love the logical progression here. Look at this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than man. When it, 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 it's, it's language that I enjoy reading because God is never foolish. But were he to be, he's still wiser than man. <laughs> and God is never weak, but were he to be perceived as being weak, he's still stronger than man. I mean, flesh, flex your muscles, big guys. All right, you can lift a thousand pounds. What can God lift? <laughs> he flung the universe into being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when God is apparently weak, he's still stronger than men. And when God is apparently foolish, he's wiser than men. Verse 26. Look around, brothers. Look at the church at Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Look around. Who's with you in the assembly? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, I'm grateful he didn't say not any. There were some wise according to worldly standards. And guess what? Paul's evidence of that. Paul was wise by worldly standards. But he says not many. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. No, doesn't say not any. But not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Again, not any. No, it didn't say that. It says not many were of noble birth. Then there's the word but again. But God chose. Now, notice how many times we're going to come across that phrase. God chose, God chose, God chose. If he says it once, we should take notice. When he repeats it, hmm, repeats it twice. But God chose what is foolish in the world, and I just want to say this, intentionally. Why? To shame the wise. Look at your Bible, that's what it says. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Look around you at the church at Corinth. Not many this, not many that, not many wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Why? Why is that the case? Because God chose. If you've got a problem with God choosing, you've got a problem with the God of the Bible. God chooses. God chooses who will be saved. God chose. Look, it's God's choice. God chose intentionally what is foolish in the world. I know I qualify for that. For what purpose? To shame the wise. Why? Because those who proclaim they have wisdom are not getting to God. Those who admit they're foolish in the world, God says, <laughs> I chose you. I set my love on you. And I will show my son to you. Not only to bring you to myself, but also to shame the wise who start off with man and his thinking, thinking themselves so great. God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose, that's the second time we come across that phrase, the two-word phrase, God chose. God chose what is weak in the world. Why? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose, third time we read it, 
Third time we read that phrase, God chose what is low and despised in the world. Look at this. Even things that are not, they're nothing. God chose the nothings, the low, the despised in the world. He set his love on them and he did so with another holy intention. Look at this. To bring to nothing things that are. Wow. (laughs) It just makes me want to throw up my hands and say, thank you. I don't understand this except it's so plain. There was nothing in me. I was nothing. And God says, yep, and I chose you. I hope you can say the same. Oh, how wise I was. No, no, I, I was floundering. I couldn't see. I was blind. I was deaf, deaf to the things of God. I didn't get it. And God opened up my eyes. Because I was something that was not. To bring to nothing things that are. Wow. And then we have verse 29. Now get this. Get this. Here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of him saving anyone. And here's the purpose of him choosing anyone. Here's the purpose of him bringing salvation. Not by man's conquest, but by sovereign grace. Why? Why do you do it, God? He tells us. He tells us. So that no flesh, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mark Webb, years ago, to paraphrase him, said when we speak of election, it's not as if God is trying to bring human dignity down to such a level that it's discouraged human boasting down to the level where it's discouraged I'm, I'm talking about dignified in the wrong sense you know the accolades of man no human boasting is not only discouraged or kept to a minimum to quote Mark Webb it's removed entirely there's no room for it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No work of man, no thing we can point to in us, nothing. There wasn't anything in us. That's why it's grace. Grace by very definition is unmerited without merit not only did we have no merits we all had demerits and were saved by grace alone so here the full brunt of this God chose God chose God chose so that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him You're in Christ Jesus, him being God. I want to ask you, do you attribute your salvation to God and God alone? 
That's where the Bible points you. That's where the Bible takes you. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because you had the wisdom your neighbor didn't. Not because you were more righteous than your neighbor. You were more humble than your neighbor. It's because of God. You're in Christ Jesus. Who became to us <laughs> wisdom from God. Oh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Colossians says, in Christ is all wisdom. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. Oh, there it is. He, not, it's not that he just has righteousness, but he is righteousness to me. He became to us, and I can say, he became to me righteousness and sanctification. He's my sanctification because I blow it. But I'm in Christ and I'm set apart for God. And when I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. First John chapter one, verse nine. And Christ is to me and all God's elect wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Are you ready? There's another so that. <laughs> so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, thank you, God. Lord Jesus, you're my boast. I boast of you. Why are you here? In heaven, John, why are you here? <laughs> Nothing I did. My boast is in the Lord. I'm sure as you're reading that, you're like me, thinking of Paul's words elsewhere in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the message we've heard? By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He is my boast. The cross of Christ is my boast. I'm boasting. I am boasting. Yeah, I'm boasting. I'm boasting in the Lord. Look what you did. There we were. Liable to find in the message of the cross stumbling block or foolishness but because we're called we see in the cross the true sign and the true wisdom the ultimate sign and the power of God and the ultimate in the wisdom of God let's bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, summing this up, if we could argue people into the kingdom through just intelligent rhetoric and they were to come to Christ because of that, we've got something to boast about. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about not having an answer. We should have an answer. First Peter 3, verse 
15 declares we should always be ready as we sanctify Christ as Lord, set him apart as Lord, be ready with an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you. I, I get that, but understand this. If we're seeking by our rhetoric only to get folk in to the kingdom, we're, we're, we're on a fool's errand. Paul knew what would stimulate the ears of the wise of this world. And he says, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, defend that, yes. Defend that, yes, 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 we will. Let me ask you this as we wrap this up. Where do we, where do you, where do I look for wisdom? I want to challenge you, compare every philosophy out there with the truth of Scripture. Because truth is not a morally neutral issue from a biblical perspective. To promote untruth is actually evil. And God holds people accountable for the truth he's revealed. Romans 1 makes that clear. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 and 11 speak of those who are perishing, they, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. The result is God sends them strong delusion in order to believe the lie. Society doesn't believe in truth, not, not in our Western society, not, not in general. They certainly don't believe that truth is a moral issue. It is. Because there is a God who has spoken, there's a God of truth. The cross is the ultimate in wisdom and in power. The world says that's the ultimate example of weakness, humiliation. We don't want anything to do with that. But from God's perspective, it's the greatest act of power. The greatest miracle. Do you know what the greatest miracle is for anyone? Not coming out of a wheelchair or blind eyes physically being healed. It's the taking out of the heart of stone, making it a heart of flesh. Turning a hater of God into a lover of God. Look again at verse 30. Do you acknowledge this? By his doing, one version says, you are in Christ Jesus. And the only thing that separates the saved and the damned is a five-letter word. I heard this years ago. I wrote it down. I can't remember exactly where I got it. Here it is. The only thing that separates the two groups is a five-letter word called grace. It's all Christ. When God gives you grace, he gives you Christ. Christ and him crucified. Christ in the true gospel. And when you understand it, you realize there is no ground of boasting in me at all. And unless we get that, we can't get to verse 31. We can't 
say, if we don't get it, there's no way to say. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your clear word. We love the consistency of this, the depth of this. And Lord, we are about the the work that we're about in our lives for the sake of the elect, because that's your purpose. The maturation of the people of God, the salvation of God's people, and the glory of the triune God. Do all things for the glory of God. Lord, we want to be about your purpose as Paul was. We want to please you. So, Lord, give us the clarity of mind to see what is our task. And let's be about that. Get yourself glory. We pray in Jesus' name.